Welcome to Blaze in History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. I'm Blaze Bryant. Facebook.com slash Blazin Shows. It's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter and my website. Go check it out, BlazinShows.com. Hope all is well and that you had a great week. As we recap this week in history from April 22nd through April 28th. Start with April 22nd, 1970. 51 years ago to the day was the first Earth Day. And we have some coverage from that day, courtesy of CBS News. A good part of the effort to make this Earth Day a success was concentrated, of course, in the major population and pollution centers. We have a report on several of the big cities, beginning with Robert Shackney in Boston. It had been a small and it seemed a thoroughly peaceful, non-disruptive demonstration. Students finishing Earth Day with what they called a die-in at Boston's Logan Airport. Coffins to symbolize the problems of airport and airplane pollution. In the name of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I command all persons here assembled immediately and peacefully to disperse and... It wasn't clear why the state police ordered the demonstrators out, but they were leaving when, for no visible reason, trouble. The police charging the crowd, seizing the coffins, pushing those who moved too slowly, and arresting 13. They had been talking in advance of crowds of thousands of attempts to disrupt the airport, but that didn't happen. This crowd, just a few hundred, had seemed orderly and nonviolent. Earth Day in Logan Airport. Police arrests disorder. Robert Chackney, CBS News, Boston. For two hours, fashionable Fifth Avenue was off limits to automobiles and became a crowded pedestrian mall. Autos were banned on busy 14th Street, too, and thousands of persons jammed into Union Square to attend an Earth Day rally. The square hadn't looked this clean in years, with volunteer help doing the sprucing up. It was a fun day for many school-age youngsters participating in their very first demonstration. There were dozens of exhibits, including this block-long air bubble, to prove how quiet it can be in a busy city. The two streets that were blocked off provided islands of quiet. The quality of the air improved, but you didn't have to go far to find Manhattan as it really is. Morton Dean, CBS News, New York. In terms of air pollution, Chicago ranks close to the top nationally, which isn't much to sing about, but that they did at a mass rally in the loop to mark Earth Day. Over 4,000 persons came to listen to the singing and the speeches, much less than what was expected. Among the recommendations to improve the environment, the establishment of pollution courts to quickly try offenders, and the elimination of the internal combustion engine, a suggestion no doubt aimed at purifying the city's often choking atmosphere. A 
Mike Pappas, CBS News, Chicago. Thousands of students demonstrated at colleges and universities throughout the West. At Caltech, while others did the talking, one toddler was doing his own bit to protect the environment. One of the talkers was Dr. James Bonner, a biologist. When we look around our Earth and see uh, the uh, ability that man has shown to devastate our Earth, it makes one think that the whole world would be better off if man hadn't been invented. Black balloons by the hundreds represented pollution of the land, sea, and air. The same symbolism at Stanford University, where the center of attraction was an ecology fair. One demonstration showed poisonous emissions from an automobile. Another exhibit urged useful recycling of waste products. And yet another called for population control. Several thousand Stanford students turned out to hear, among others, a television star whose sponsor sells detergents, Eddie Albert. Uh, the information is let's look at each other with respect and recognize that the gross national product is a, the love affair we've had with that is idiotic. That man is the important thing. And that this earth is the important thing. This tiny little ball has only got so much, so much oxygen, so many acres of earth to live off of, so much water, so much metals that we need to survive. And if we, if we louse it up, if we throw it into the sea, if we ruin it, we're dead. Another speaker who vowed as a college girl never to bear children and who works now with Planned Parenthood, Stephanie Mills. I think that it's terribly important for us to begin to involve ourselves in politics so that we can turn the system around. If we got together to dump Nixon, we might end up with nothing, but I think that may be worth a try. Obviously, this administration is being utterly hypocritical in its attempts to deal with environmental pollution, obviously. $1 billion a year is what Walter Hickel is talking about spending, cleaning up water pollution. Now, 80 times that is what we're spending to defoliate Southeast Asia and to incinerate Southeast Asians. This has got to come to a halt. At UCLA, the crowd was thin. Those who were there heard a school teacher and her fourth graders sing about pollution. That was from April 22nd, 1970, CBS News coverage about Earth Day. We fast forward to April 23rd of 2007. That is when Boris Yeltsin, who was the Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, which then became Russia after the Cold War, he resigned on New Year's Eve of 1999, and that is when Vladimir Putin took over. Anyway, Boris Yeltsin died on April 23, 2007. And here's a fascinating conversation about his life. It's a bit long, but well worth it, courtesy of Al Jazeera English. The act that spelled the end of communism and Russia's worst crisis since the revolution. How will Boris Yeltsin be remembered? This is Inside Story.
Well, I'm David Foster. The West hailed him as a champion of freedom. To millions of ordinary Russians, he was the man who threw away their empire. The death of Boris Yeltsin has brought mixed emotions in his homeland. To many of his mourners, he's the hero who brought down the Soviet Union, claiming democracy and capitalism for the world's biggest country. Others cite the years of turmoil that followed, riven with economic hardship. Most agree, though, that his eight years in power were a huge turning point in Russian history. So what will his legacy be? From a hero of democracy, raising his fist to see off an attempted coup, to embarrassing stumbles. Yeltsin was always a flamboyant leader. He ruled Russia from 1991 till 1999, overseeing the death of the Soviet Union and the birth of a democratic Russia. His legacy will be debated for years to come. But in the area of the economy, Yeltsin pushed for market reform and ending price fixing, driving inflation up by 2,000% until the government rebelled. The crisis culminated in Yeltsin dissolving the parliament. MPs then responded by refusing to leave the building. For the second time in his career, the deadlock was broken by tanks. They pounded the building until the leaders of the attempted coup were arrested. It wasn't the last time Yeltsin resorted to violence. In Chechnya, Yeltsin's attempts to put down a rebellion cemented this region as a flashpoint for conflict that continues today. Yeltsin accepted democracy, but still manipulated it to remain in power relying on his family and multi-millionaire businessmen to call the shots in the new Russia. But in retirement, the exhibitionist leader virtually disappeared from public view. Well, joining us now from Moscow, Dmitry Babich, a leading journalist and political analyst who writes for Russia Profile. And from London, Martin McCauley, a specialist in Russian history and politics, the author of numerous studies of Russia and the Soviet Union. Dmitry Babich, uh, first of all, in just a moment I'd like to explore Yeltsin's personality, but first of all, what do you believe should be written on his tombstone? I think uh, the following phrase, the man whom Russia loved once. Maybe I would also add, great disillusionment only follows true love. Martin McCauley? I think you're uh, a great success, but also a great failure. A man who promised much but in the end, uh, delivered very little. So what, Martin, were, were the contradictions in Yeltsin? Well, first of all, he was a liberal by instinct, uh, and that's very important. A liberal leader in Russia uh, is a phenomenon. Uh, normally, Russian leaders are conservative. They concentrate power at the center. Uh, um, uh, Yeltsin was a populist. Uh, he was very good at going to the people. Uh, he wanted the people to participate and so on. Therefore, you could say he began uh, on the path to democracy. Uh, economically, unfortunately, he got very bad advice. Shock therapy in 1992 was a disaster. And then you had the 1998 financial crisis, financial failure, when the new middle class was decimated. So therefore, economically, uh, the uh, result, uh, results were very, very poor. And uh, had there been free elections, 1996, for instance, the presidential election, the communist candidate Zuganov actually won. Uh, but of course, it, it all depended on who counted the votes, and, and Yeltsin was declared the, the victor. So therefore, the, the people had fallen out of love with him uh, by uh, the middle 1990s. And then he handed on his legacy uh, to President Putin. 
who's been very lucky because uh, of rising oil and gas prices and commodity prices. Had uh, oil and, and gas prices been as high in the early 1990s as 10 years later, 15 years later, then Yeltsin probably would have been a great success because a huge amount of money would have flowed into the country. But he was very unlucky because oil and gas prices were low and, therefore, and, the, and the state couldn't collect taxes, therefore social services uh, floundered and so on. Uh, and the people who will look back uh, with most affection will be the small liberal middle class, the intelligentsia, those who, uh, many of them have Western values and so on. But the vast majority of Russians will say uh, he was an enormous disappointment uh, and now compare that era to the new Putin era, uh, we much prefer Putin. Uh, Dmitry Babich, when he said, Yeltsin said in his resignation speech, people believe that we'd be able to jump from the grey stagnating totalitarian past into a bright, rich and civilised future in one go. And I myself believed that. Uh, was it because he was a victim of circumstance or, or was he naive? Well, I, uh, to, to be frank with you, I don't think Yeltsin was a failure. Uh, uh, life in Russia in the 90s uh, was no bed of roses, but uh, it was destined to be so. Uh, I mean, both Gorbachev and Yeltsin uh, could not be entirely successful presidents because Russia had to go through economic crisis. There was no other way we could reform uh, our economy, which uh, hasn't changed uh, much since Stalin's times. It was based on the same principles in the uh, late 80s as uh, in the early 50s. And uh, isolation uh, from uh, the West uh, was also inevitable. As we see now, the West doesn't particularly like us with Yeltsin or with Putin or with anyone else. So the best thing Gorbachev and Yeltsin could do was to alleviate the pain, to sugar the peel of humiliation. But they could not be entirely successful presidents D Dimitri, because the system was unreformed. I'd like to go into his legacy mm -hmm. and what he may or may not have achieved for his country a little bit later on. But in terms of his personality, I'm left wondering, looking at the pictures, whether he was shrewd or simple. And, and when I say simple, I mean not a complicated person. Well, I must tell you that uh, the image of Yeltsin as a bumbling bear is a wrong image. Uh, he was very cunning politically. He outwitted all of his enemies, uh, some very smart men among them. And also, you know, I remember talking to his uh, head of his protocol service, uh, Mr. Uh, Shevchenko, who worked with both him and Gorbachev. And uh, Shevchenko said that Gorbachev was late very often, and Putin is now late very often. Yeltsin was never late. So uh, this idea of him being a careless, uh, he might be careless in details, but he was very responsible in important things. But, but he appeared to be a very heavy drinker, and there, there were those who suggested that this um, affected his work. Well, he was a man of the people. That was part of his charisma. Uh, I once interviewed uh, the head of uh, Yeltsin's press service, Kostikov, uh, with whom Yeltsin quarreled badly, so Kostikov had no reason to love him. But Kostikov told me there was never a spark of love between Gorbachev and the simple folk. Only intellectuals loved Gorbachev and probably Westerners. But there was a spark of love between Yeltsin and the people, because people perceived him as one of their own. Maybe drinking was part of that. Uh, Martin McCauley, you edited uh, Gorbachev's English memoirs, and, and you've said to me that uh, you were surprised at how nice he was, probably too nice to, to be a leader of the, the Soviet Union. What would you say of, of Yeltsin's personality in that vein? 
he was uh, a real Russian and he was very cunning uh, and somebody from his origin his background his origins and so on uh, he achieved a lot and you can only get to a position like that if you are cunning uh, if, if you can outfox people and, and, and he did that his tragedy was that his health began to deteriorate uh, and because of that uh, then he was taking drugs and he had a bypass operation he, he drank a lot to relieve the pain and so on uh, and his judgment was then clouded and because of that power if you like then slipped away to those around him uh, and uh, to people like Chubias and others uh, who manipulated uh, him uh, and then you had the oligarchs like Berezovsky uh, who was very close to uh, Yeltsin's family and so on uh, if you like uh, the business elite became very powerful and in many ways they got involved in politics and uh, they took some of the decision-making away from Yeltsin. Uh, and was and this, I had the impression if, if I may interrupt, I'll just tackle you on this one point, was, was this the time when um, Yeltsin's wife, uh, Naina, went on television and uh, begged for some understanding for her family when they were implicated in financial scandals? Yes, well, um, the period when he declines is after 1996. He was re-elected president in 1996. We now know that the communist Zuganov won the election, but uh, it didn't really matter because uh, uh, Zuganov didn't want to become president. Uh, and after that, if you like, he was a president in waiting. He was a president in the shadows, uh, disappeared from time to time. His wife did come forward, uh, and there were uh, various uh, uh, scandals and so on associated uh, with the leadership. Uh, and uh, you had a situation where uh, he wasn't really in control, he wasn't a strong leader, uh, decisions would be taken by others. If you look at the number of prime ministers, it was it's a merry-go-round uh, and really a desperate attempt to find a prime minister to run the country. He couldn't get a majority in parliament, he had to bribe parliament to get legislation through. They tried to impeach him and so on. Uh, and Russia. Uh, I would say, needed a strong leader. If you go back to Russia in the 1990s, uh, uh, the lesson is that you don't reform economically and politically, and this is the mistake that Gorbachev also made, you don't reform economically and politically at the same time. Uh, the classic example here is China and Vietnam. Uh, the Communist parties there, there have retained the monopoly of political power, but they have thriving, uh, successful market economies underway. Now, um, it's possible that China and Vietnam can do that, and perhaps uh, Russia could not have done that, but that's obviously the way forward. And so there, wa there was an alternative to the Gorbachev and Yeltsin era. Uh, but of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the economy collapsed as well, and they took American advice, you know, shock therapy and so on. And looking back on it, it was very bad advice. Uh, the, uh, uh, the state should have played a much more important role in managing the economy. Uh, and the institution should have been built up. Uh, uh, the the uh, Yeltsin more or less handed it over to Gaidar. Yeltsin had very little interest in economics and couldn't really grasp economic theory uh, and handed it over to Gaidar and others. Well, and then at the end of the day, Gaidar didn't deliver. Um, so Martin, uh, if at this point policy. I could just bring Dimitri back in. Um, Egor Gaidar, um, who had led the democratic opposition to the Chechnyan war, and he, he publicly broke with Yeltsin over this. Um, he said, the victory is ours about the fall of the Soviet Union. For me, Yeltsin is a tool of history. Well, uh, in a way, Yeltsin was a tool of history, and uh, I wouldn't judge uh, the situation in Russia in the 90s and now only in negative terms. The fact that uh, China and Vietnam didn't have a political reform 
and that they had only economic reform doesn't mean that they have less corruption than Russia does. They probably have more. It's just not reported in the press. In Russia, you can say it openly. In Vietnam or in China, you will have some difficulties criticizing the, the government as a whole. So very difficult. And, uh, um, uh, Gaidar? I was just going to say, so very difficult to, to separate uh, the personality from what he's achieved. But uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to look at uh, uh, what Gorbachev's legacy actually is, how Russia changed, and the role that Boris Yeltsin played in shaping its image. Do stay with us on Inside Story. Boris Yeltsin died on April 23, 2007. On April 24, 1980, there was a failed rescue during the Iran hostage crisis. Here is some of that coverage from ABC News. A U.S. effort to rescue the hostages in Iran was aborted by President Carter after an equipment failure forced a change in plans. Eight Americans were killed when two U.S. aircraft collided as the American volunteers were being pulled out of a remote area of the Iranian desert. We now know the rescue attempt was launched at about 5 p.m. our time, that the president made the decision to abort the mission at about 9 o'clock. The news broke at about 1 o'clock this morning, informing the nation that all the volunteers had been removed from the Iranian desert base, and the President Carter would make a statement on the abortive rescue attempt at 7 o'clock this morning. We have a portion of that address. This rescue attempt had to await my judgment that the Iranian authorities could not or would not resolve this crisis on their own initiative. With the steady unraveling of authority in Iran and the mounting dangers that were posed to the safety of the hostages themselves and the growing realization that their early release was highly unlikely, I made a decision to commence the rescue operations plans. This attempt became a necessity and a duty the readiness of our team to undertake the rescue made it completely practicable. Accordingly, I made the decision to set our long-developed plans into operation. I ordered this rescue mission prepared in order to safeguard American lives, to protect America's nat national interest, and to reduce the tensions in the world. In his statement, the president alluded to the first phase of the operation. Obviously, he did not detail what was to follow the establishment of the base of operations in the remote desert town that lies about an hour and a half's flight time from Tehran and, of course, the American embassy. There has been, of course, much reaction. Three people that we were able to talk with and listen to, Senator Jacob Javits of New York and Senator John Glenn, were both cautious in their uh, appraisal. They urged uh, our nation to be cool, the people to be cool, to watch and wait for the next few hours and days to see what the reaction, of course, would be in Iran and to their people. Gutzpadeh, the foreign minister of Iran, said that they too were taking a reasoned approach. They, of course, regretted the American action, called it warlike and all of those kind of things, but he too talked a conciliatory tone. And also in conversation with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, he thought that the action taken by the president was a positive one. He thought that it was about time that we act with some decision and decisiveness. And he said it would prove to the Iranian people and to the neighboring Russians, of course, that we take this uh, matter very seriously. And he thought that we ought not to apologize for the action that we have taken. That comment from former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. And to repeat for you now, the United States has launched an effort 
to rescue the hostages being held in the U.S. Embassy in Iran. That effort was aborted by what was described as an equipment failure by the President as the volunteer force was being pulled out of the base in Iran, an Iranian desert town, Tabriz. A collision occurred between two American aircraft, resulting in the deaths of eight Americans. April 24, 1980, a failed rescue attempt of hostages during the Iran hostage crisis. On April 26, 1986, 35 years ago to the day, was one of the worst nuclear disasters we've ever seen. Massive quantities of radiation have apparently been released in an accident at the Chernobyl power station in the Ukraine. Many thousands of people live in the vicinity. Moscow admits there have been casualties, and signs are that a big relief operation is underway. This report from our European correspondent, Mark Colvin. In an unprecedented step, the Kremlin acknowledged there'd been an accident, but only after Scandinavian scientists had picked up high radiation levels. A statement from the Soviet Council of Ministers was read on television, a sign of the degree of Moscow's concern. Diplomats speculated that the mention of casualties could indicate a high death toll. The Soviet news agency TASS said one of the reactors at Chernobyl, north of Kiev, had been damaged. But there are no details of how serious the accident was. Soviet nuclear plants, like this one we were given a rare opportunity to see in 1984, have less built-in safety precautions than Western plants. TASS said measures were being taken to help the injured, and the government was setting up a commission of inquiry. Reports from Kiev say all bus services in the city have been cancelled. The vehicles are being used instead to evacuate the Chernobyl area, with a population estimated at around 50,000. The wind blew a cloud of radiation over the Baltic states towards Scandinavia. Some radiation monitors recorded levels 10 times above normal. In Sweden, about 600 people were evacuated from a nuclear plant north of Stockholm. Authorities there thought at first the radiation levels must be coming from a leak in their own reactor. Some Western scientists suggest the type of pollution detected could indicate a nuclear meltdown. An enormous amount of radioactivity must have gotten out of the power plant. And uh, I spoke with uh, some people in Sweden this morning, and they indicate that they have found iodine uh, in Sweden and uh, cesium, which means, uh, which very strongly suggests that there was a, a core meltdown. The accident at Three Mile Island in the United States in 1979 was a partial meltdown. The nuclear rods melted and fuel pooled at the bottom of the reactor. In the Russian accident, the worst possibility is that the process went the disastrous next step, the core melting down and the radioactive fuel burning into the earth or escaping as gas. There's also the possibility that the pressure vessel ruptured, leaking a vast cloud of radioactive steam. And one big problem which Western scientists see in Soviet plants is the lack of a containment building. When all else fails, there's no outer shell to hold the radioactivity in. That, of course, was Chernobyl, which happened again on April 26th, 1986. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, blazing through history one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at shows, Or email me, shows at gmail.com. 
You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website, blazonshows.com. If you can, please consider making a donation to ensure we can bring you a fully accessible podcast. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself and we'll talk again next week. On Blazing History, I'm Blaze Bryant.